1: Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off, I want to tell you about an exciting development at Spiked. We have launched Spiked Supporters, our online hub for regular donors complete with exclusive perks – From now on, those who give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year will be able to comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to our events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse in your very own Spike Supporters account. To kick things off, we also have an extra special offer. Supporters can claim a free ticket while stocks last to our upcoming Zoom event on the 15th of June, where I will be in conversation with the great Rod Little. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We are really grateful for that. Regular donors who already give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are already eligible to join Spike supporters. You should have received an email from us, but if you haven't, get in contact by emailing supporters at spiked-online.com and we'll get you set up with an account. And if you don't give to Spike yet, now is the perfect time to do it. Just go to spiked-online.com supporters to set up your donation and set up your Spiked supporters account. Thank you all from everyone at Spiked. And now on with the show.
0: The woke agenda and the Descent into our identity politics has been an absolute disaster for the left in terms of alienating so many millions of working class people who don't understand the obsession with these things. It's been divisive and it's been regressive and I think the left is paying a huge price for it. And the whole kind of woke thing is essentially about people trying to gain some sort of social kudos. People just sit on their iPhone and tap out a tweet and think that's done it for me in my daily fight
1: against social injustice. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Paul Embury. Paul is a former firefighter, a trade unionist and a writer. He writes for Unheard and he is the author of Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. He has been a member of the Labour Party since 1994, and he is active in the blue Labour tendency, which tries to reconnect Labour to its traditional working-class support base. Paul was an enthusiastic backer of Brexit, and he has made a name for himself as someone who stands up for working-class people against the new elites that too often look down upon them with contempt. So Paul, we're talking a few weeks after the disastrous local elections, the Hartlepool by-election, and the trend of Labour losing its traditional working class voters continues apace. And it really has become one of the most pronounced and notable phenomenons of modern British politics. Do you think the enormity of this has sunk into the Labour Party establishment. I mean, obviously, there is a lot of discussion. There is even some talk of this being a make-or-break moment for the Labour Party. But do you think the, the enormity of what's happening and the historic nature of it, and the fact, as you've pointed out, that it's been gathering pace for quite a long time, do you think that has sunk in with people who run the Labour Party?
0: I don't think it's sunk in... With enough of them, um, I mean, it always struck me that when you look at the uh, 2019 general election results, and they were obviously pretty dire for the Labour Party. But what was interesting, I think, is that some of the some of the seats that Labour managed to hold on to in that election, including some so-called red wall seats, mm. the majority was was pretty narrow, and it always seemed to me that that this was not. Necessarily the nadir for the Labour Party in the way that some people were were saying it was you know people thought that things couldn't possibly get any worse, you know the only mm. way from here was up, and it seemed to me that that was you know that was complacent in the extreme because I felt that in many respects the taboo had been broken, and communities that once upon a time i think you know bought at the very idea of voting Tory you know working class blue collar communities People saw the Tories as the enemy. We're never going to vote for those people. You know, that taboo was broken. And it's like anything, once it's broken once, it's, it's very easy or easier to do it again. And what people, I think, in those communities uh, showed at the, the recent local elections is that having voted Tory once, they won't hesitate to do it twice if they feel that the yeah. Labour Party still no longer represents them, if they feel rightly or wrongly um, that the Tories are delivering for them. So I, I genuinely think that this could be curtains for the Labour I mean, I really hope it isn't. I think it could be curtains for the Labour Party. The interesting thing was, even if you look at devastating previous election results like 1983 under Michael Foote, Labour still managed to hold on to much of its you know, traditional working class base, the Red Wall constituencies. This time, they're not doing that right. across large parts of the land. And that makes me think that it, it, could, be, it could be a life or death moment for the Labour Party.
1: So this shift that is taking place, which you have written extensively about, really comes to a head in 2019, the absolutely devastating general election results. And as you've just said, that is the trend is continuing, as we saw in the local elections this year. I want to talk to you a bit about why you think these kinds of voters, Red Wall voters, many traditional working class Labour voters, why you think they're abandoning the Labour Party now in such huge numbers. Now, of course, a key part of it, I think, is Brexit and what Brexit brought to the surface, which was a feeling among many of these voters that the Labour Party wasn't listening to them, wasn't taking their democratic demands seriously. And you've written that when Labour embraced a second referendum policy on Brexit, it was handing a P45 to every Labour MP in the North and the Midlands, which turned out to be pretty much true. So Brexit was a big part of it, wasn't it? It might not be the whole story, but I wonder if you could just explain the impact that you think Labour's turn against the vote for Brexit had on some of those voters.
0: I think it was significant. Um, I I don't think it's the whole story, but I think it was significant. What you you had is large numbers in 2016 in the referendum, large numbers of, of traditional Labour voters um, particularly in provincial Britain, small town Britain, post-industrial Britain, who voted for Brexit. Um, it was the first opportunity many of them thought they had ever had really of, of firing a missile across the status quo and really shaking up the, the political establishment in a way that you know, they, they don't get that opportunity really in general elections. And having done that, many of them having voted for the first time, by the way, um, for the Labour Party, their party, historically, to have subsequently done everything to undermine that and then explicitly by 2019 come out and said, look, we're going to make you go through the whole process again because we don't like the way that you voted, struck me that it was electoral suicide. And, and I wrote mm. recently that I was at the, the Labour Party conference, uh, the annual conference, and I think it was 2018. And I was in the hall for a, a big debate on Brexit where, they, where the Labour Party adopted the second referendum policy. And I remember looking around and thinking, you know, I must be living in some sort of parallel universe or they must be. <laughs> um, because if you really think that, you know, voting this separate referendum through and doing it with great gusto and enthusiasm, you know, that's really how it was. If you really think that that is going to to go down well in in these you know red wall constituencies that voted for Brexit, um, then you must be out of your minds. And it seems to me it seemed to me that after that it was only ever, ever going to go one way. But it would be a big mistake, I think, to to think that the rot set in terms of the Labour Party and the working class simply with the the, the Brexit referendum. I've written that actually you can trace it back, I think, to the best part of the last thirty years. And and I mm. really think that the first decade of this century was was pivotal really in weakening the link between the working class and the labour party because that were, that was when labour began embracing the global market. the impact of the acute effects of globalization in terms of de and rapid demographic change were taking place in many of these sort of traditional working class communities and these people looked at the labour party for um for support for respite and the Labour Party basically told them to suck it up. You know, this is the way of the world now. We're much more of a of a sort of open border society, a global market society, and this you, you know, this new liberal cosmopolitanism is is really good for you, even if you don't recognize it it really stretched, I think, the elastic of social solidarity in those communities and stretched the the, the trust that people had in the Labour Party. So that's been going on now for for at least a couple of decades. uh, And until people in the Labour Party understand that and don't just attribute the current predicament to Corbyn or just to Brexit, then then they're not going to work out what's the right
1: path back. Before we talk about the potential future of the Labour Party, if it has one, I'm not necessarily convinced that it does. I I know that you hope that it does. But before we get into the future of the Labour Party, let's just talk a bit about those past three decades, as as you mentioned, and the kind of things that were going on and the kind of forces that were shaping the Labour Party at that time, which alienated working class voters to such an extraordinary degree. So you've written about the fact that you know, Labour voters have been turning against Labour for quite a long time. They didn't originally go to the Tories. Some Labour voters gave their votes to even to the BNP. Many of them gave their votes to UKIP, largely as a way of demanding essentially a bit more of a say on the European Union, on issues of globalisation, on those kinds of things that they were told they weren't allowed to talk about, they didn't know enough about. So they have for a while been looking for a vehicle through which they could say something about the Labour Party, how they view the Labour Party, about their sense of frustration, and then eventually it gets switched into votes for the Tory party. And as you say, that really does represent a dam breaking. And, and once that that has happened, then there's potentially no going back. So if we look at those past 30 years, so we're looking at Blair, Brown, all the various other things that happened in that period, what would you say were the defining factors of Labour's turn or rather the working classes, turn away from Labour? Was it the fact that it became an increasingly middle-class party, a professionalised party, a party that was staffed by people who didn't understand working-class voters, as well as one that was embracing political ideologies that were alien to working-class voters? How would you define that? Block of time in terms of what built up in in terms of the frustration between the working classes and the Labour Party.
0: I th- think it was all of those things to varying degrees. Um, I mean, the, the the Labour Party, as as I've written, has always historically been a compromise between, as I've described it, Hartlepool and Hampstead. So you know, it was created for for the working class as a vehicle to to advance the interests of the working class, but it's always managed um, to attract a layer of support from, you know, the more middle class um educated, graduates, more liberal, um, metropolitan based people. And and I think actually it's it's been the better for that. Uh, I've never argued that all Labor has to do is appeal to, you know, the old traditional working class blue collar vote and, you know, it's gonna to storm to victory at an election. I think it's It's performed best at elections when it's managed to to hold those two elements of the coalition together. I think what's happened actually over the last thirty years is that coalition has become completely unbalanced, um, Mm. and the Labour Party has become itself much more geared towards the priorities and demands of the the Hampstead element. And always thought that the Hartlepool element would stay on board, you know, because they've got nowhere else Mm. to go. Um, But actually, as we've seen, that's not what happened. I mean, the first decade of, of this century. Millions of traditional voters, Labour voters, just started to abstain, or as you say, they went to the BNP or UKIP, didn't for a long period go to the, to the Tory party because of that stigma. I think that was always uh, attached to the Tory party. But when the Tories said in 2019, we're going to get Brexit done, then you know, people, people felt in their own minds it was right to, to put their trust in the Tories. And as I say, having done that once, they won't hesitate to, to do it again, as we've seen but during that time, so you had this sort of embrace of the, the global market and the impact that that had in terms of deindustrialization and thousands of, of you know blue collar jobs being shipped abroad, and and the way that that really tore up the, the social fabric, I think, of many you know working class communities. You had the rapid demographic change in in some of these communities where people were told, you know, in, this is cultural enrichment and you need to embrace it. And if you don't, you're really a, a nativist or a bigot or some sort of reactionary. And at the same time as Labour was abandoning people on the, uh, you know, in terms of, of the economic justice and the social justice front, the party itself, I think, was becoming far more middle class. As I say, the Hampstead mm. element began to dominate and Hartlepool was really elbowed out. And you get to a point now where that process having taken place, where the Labour Party is really, I think, a party for the professional and managerial uh, classes, a party for student radicals, a party for Twitter, uh, a party for middle-class liberals living in our fashionable cities. And it has utterly, I think, lost its connection with people in post-industrial Britain and provincial Britain. And it's a, it's a wound, really, I think that's been entirely self-inflicted Um, And there's a mountain to climb, I think, to win most people back. And I don't think the Labour Party has even started on that climb.
1: On that very issue, uh, I think one of the most important insights that you've pushed forward over the past few months has been the fact that there's something quite phony about the current battle tearing the Labour Party apart. So at the moment, it takes the form of the Starmerites versus the Corbynistas, to put it crudely. So on one side you have... Keir Starmer and the centrists who think, who thought, maybe they've now changed their minds, who thought he would renew the Labour Party, reconnect with lost voters and, and take the Labour Party to victory. That obviously hasn't happened. And then on the other side, you have. Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters who are still around and still making a huge amount of noise and stamping their feet and getting very angry with Keir Starmer and all the other centrists. and So it looks like there's an ideological battle for the soul of the Labour Party. But the point you make, which I think is incredibly important, is that those two sides have more in common than they would ever like to admit. So both of them are, as you say, they're imbued with the same bourgeois, metropolitan, pretty much globalist worldview. So what do you think, which I think is absolutely right, but what do you think explains the intensity of the battle between these two sides that are actually quite similar? Because it's basically a fight amongst people in Hampstead rather than Hampstead versus Hartlepool. Is it the narcissism of small differences? Is it just this bitterness that is sweeping the Labour Party because it is becoming so distant from power. How do you explain the the intensity of that rivalry between those two quite similar sections?
0: Because I think each blames the other for the predicament of the, of the Labour Party. The, the radical left, the Corbynites, will uh, blame Blairism. And the Blairites, the centrists, the liberal left, call them what you will, uh, will blame Corbyn for all the, the, the problems of the Labour Party. And each thinks, you know, as long as you can reduce the influence or eradicate the other, uh, then actually the Labour Party will be marching onwards to victory. Uh, And as I've said, actually, those two two camps are really the equivalent of two bald men fighting over a cone, because I don't think Mm -hmm. either of them Realizes um, that, that they themselves are the problem, and if either of them wins that kind of civil war, then they 'll find that the, the, the instrument that they're trying to battle valiantly to gain control of isn't actually of, of much use to them because neither of them I think understands what needs to be done um, to reconnect with the country and the, the truth is you know I, I, I sort of describe it as the sort of the liberal left and the, and the radical left as a sort of Lenin. And Lenin, a fusion of Lenin and Lenin, they're the sort of two groups that are absolutely dominant in the Labour Party at the moment. And neither of them really understands working class Britain, in my view, provincial Britain, small town Britain, post-industrial Britain. They don't understand, you know, the, the the communitarian impulse in those places, the desire for social solidarity in those places, the fact that, you know, people... Still had traditional values in many cases, but once upon a time didn't see that in any way as being incompatible with uh, with support for the Labour Party. Going back, as I say, to the the Hartlepool and Hampstead coalition, where where you know the Labour Party at its best was able to to keep both elements on board. I think also there is an element, particularly of the radical left in the Labour Party, that actually isn't willing in any way to to do what's necessary to regain power in terms of making any compromises. I mean, no compromise with the electorate, I think it seems to be the guiding uh, principle of so many people on the radical left. They feel that as long as they can put their head on the pillow at night and know that they haven't in any way compromised their purist ideology, then even if Labour goes down to defeat after defeat, then, you know, that's all that matters to them. And actually, you know, winning elections is the hard business of, of, of compromising. It's about trying to build those those coalitions. So the truth is, I think neither of those two groups point the way to reconnect with all of those millions of voters that the Labour Party has lost. And only by rediscovering, I think, its early Labour tradition, its working class roots and appealing to people in those communities will, will Labour ever stand a chance, I think, of winning power again.
1: You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I want to ask you about the radical left side of the Labour Party, the activist base, the kind of noisy cliques who were very influential in the party for a few years under Jeremy Corbyn and are still clinging on. I completely agree. I think there's almost a nihilistic element here where they seem to be driven by a desire to vindicate their past positions, to vindicate the era of Corbyn, rather than by any Idea of what might benefit the Labour Party, how they might reconnect with working class voters, is that they have this incredibly self serving, self destructive approach to the current problems of the Labour Party. But you've written about how whoever leads the Labour Party at the moment, they're going to face the problem of the membership and the problem of this activist base because there was a huge intake of members. There was a study a couple of years ago which found that the membership under Jeremy Corbyn was even more middle class than it had been under Tony Blair in terms of, you know, the graduates who are coming in, you know, especially young middle class graduates with a very supposedly radical view of life, radical view of identity, radical view of politics. and, And those people are going to be a problem regardless of who's in charge. What do you think is the answer to that? Because A purge is obviously never a good thing and would create even more conflict. But there is a genuine problem here where you have pretty self-interested middle-class radicals almost self-consciously holding the party back. Because they are so reluctant to see it go in a direction which in any way deviates from their view of the world.
0: Yes, I, I agree that you know the last thing uh, the Labour Party needs is is a purge. I'm not in favour of purges. I've been mm. I've personally been the victim of a, <laughs> of a purge in uh, in my own uh, in my own career. So I don't mm. particularly think they are they are good things. I mean, I, I think you know I think there are, are, are times when actually it's necessary to, to take action against elements within a within a political party if you know for example they are entryists uh, if they're deliberately infiltrated a, a particular party uh, from another organisation because they know they would never win on their own ticket and they're being dishonest about their motives. And I think there's some justification there. But I think if it's a genuine case that people have signed up to, to the Labour Party in principle um, and they've just got different ideas um, no matter how unpopular those ideas might be electorally I don't necessarily think that purges are the, are the right answer and, and it's true that, you know, that any leader, the will debate about whether Starmer should be the leader is an academic point, frankly, because whoever was the leader at the moment, they will be shackled by a party, a large parts of which simply do not want to go where it's necessary to go to reconnect. I mean, you, you even see this with, you know, some of the stuff that... Starmer has done in his, in his first year or so as leader, for which I think he deserves some credit. You know, he, he, he has said, you know, Brexit, we're not going to reopen that wound. We've just got to get on with it. I mean, I know he was the architect of the second referendum policy, um, but nonetheless, you know, he's, he's done the right thing since. Um, he started pressing the themes of family and community and nation, which I think working class communities want to hear. But if the if the public doesn't think it's authentic, if the public mm. sees a party that actually doesn't really believe in any of that stuff, and you only have to see some of the stick that he got when when he gave a statement in front of the union flag and he was called all sorts of things, you know, he was a, a fascist and from, from people in the party in some cases. So it's really difficult when you've got a party that simply doesn't want to, to go there. I mean, there are there are elements within the party I think that do understand what needs to be done. There's a there's a handful of MPs, I think, who get it. Uh, there are some groups within the party, Blue Labour, Labour Future, the English Labour Network, who have been articulating some of these ideas around the need to reconnect with the communitarian course of working class communities, understand the importance of social solidarity, etc. The danger for many, particularly on the radical left, a danger is that they think all you have to do, and we've seen this, I, I think, in the last few years, all you have to do is promise working class communities more money. And you know, uh, wholesale nationalisation and free broadband, and people will come back to you. Um, and it's just not true because if, if it was, if if it was just about this kind of economism, as it's as it's called, um, then actually Labour would have won in twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen mm. when its manifesto economically was more radical than than it had been for for many years. Actually, what people thought is, look, you're not just going to persuade me to vote for you by promising me an extra, I don't know, 20 quid in my pay packet each month. You know, there there are things in my life that are more important than that. And if you don't get it and if you keep dismissing me. Some kind of nativist and bigger, as parts of the left do, large parts of the left do, then don't think I'm going to vote for you just because you're promising me free money. Mm. So it's not easy. You know, I think the only answer is to try to look and sound more like people in these working class communities and to articulate some of their concerns and to try to develop those tendencies within the Labour Party that do get it. But I don't underestimate how difficult that will be in the face of, of opposition from the radical left and liberal left of the party.
1: So in terms of that very question of looking and sounding more like the people who are turning their backs on labor the people who would traditionally have voted for labor for for decades and decades I want to ask you how possible you think it is for the labor party to do that because we talk a lot about how many wings of the contemporary labor party doesn't understand uh, working class voters don't understand their lifestyles their ways of thinking their approaches to the world the working classes also feel very alienated from those people. They don't understand their political outlook either. But it goes slightly further than that, doesn't it? And and you touch on this, of course, in your book, Despised, where it's not simply that much of the modern left misunderstands working class people, but actually actively dislikes them and looks upon them with contempt very often. And you see this in different sections of the Labour Party, sadly, you know, right from Emily Thornberry's sneering at the St George's flag, to Corbynite's use of horrendous words like gammon to describe certain lower middle class voters in particular, but also the way in which much of the party came together to view working class voters who voted for Brexit essentially as bigots, xenophobes, racists, ill-educated, not sufficiently informed on the issues of the day. Doesn't it go slightly further than um, being distant from the working classes and now has crossed the line into sections of the Labour Party, at least, if not the whole Labour Party itself, actively loathing the people who they expect to vote for them?
0: Undeniably, there are elements on the left um, that I think are actively hostile to, to working class communities or people who espouse you know, what might be called traditional working class values. And they see these communities as kind of benighted and backward, Mm. and they have to be dragged out of their ignorance and they have to be forced to understand the, the precepts of the enlightenment. I mean, that is an attitude. I think that is that is prevalent on the left. I think other parts of the left tend to, to hold some affection for working class communities, but privately are quite contemptuous of, of those communities. So I, I don't underestimate the, the scale of the antipathy uh, that elements of the left including the Labour Party feel and you know, I, I wrote a whole book about it as you say so, so I'm, acutely, <laughs> I'm acutely aware of that. Equally I, you know I think there's not an illustrious history in this country of, of third parties trying to break through what is essentially a two-party system. I mean mm-hmm. you see Parties like the, the the sort of modern SDP, who I have a lot of time for and absolutely no time for the old SDP, but the, the modern version of it. <laughs> uh, I think there are, there are some really good people involved and they're articulating, you know, I think the priorities of much of working class Britain in terms of setting out policies that are towards the, the, the left on economics, arguing for economic redistribution, etc., and a fairer economy whilst at the same time understanding the communitarian instinct and and tacking to the right, if you like, on culture. Um, but the truth is they're not performing at all in terms of you know uh, the ballot box in terms of cutting through and i think that's the difficulty mm-hmm. and, and for me the labour party for all of its many many faults remains just about the, the the best option for working class people in terms of advancing their own interests. much of the trade union movement is still affiliated to to the labour party it's where the official voice of workers still resides and um, and for me the battle needs to take place within the party and the wider Labour movement in terms of winning it back to where it should be. I mean, I don't write off that possibility completely. The party has historically, over its 100-year existence, moved from left to right, and I don't think many people would have predicted by to 2015 the pretty seismic change that was about to happen inside the the Labour party in terms of the Corbynite victory and moving very much to, to the far left. So I don't underestimate the scale of it. For me, I, I just think you know it's still probably just about the best option in terms of advancing the interests of the of the working class at this stage. So,
1: do you, do you ever entertain the possibility or the thought that what Labour currently is is what Labour currently is and ha- has simply become? So, you know, we talk a lot, and particularly in your writing, you've discussed in in great detail. The victory of the of Hampstead over Hartleypool in that often quite fragile alliance, and the turning of labour towards far more middle class liberal concerns and so on maybe that 's what labour now is, you know structurally, not simply by accident, not simply because these people are are noisier and more influential, and the working classes have decided to switch to different parties over the past few decades. But possibly that's what Labour structurally has become, which would that not raise the possibility that shifting it back to what it previously was might be a bit of a fool's errand? It could well be.
0: And it, it may prove to be the case that any attempt to reform the Labour Party, I mean, I mean you know, it needs an internal revolution. We can't tinker around the edges here. It needs mm. a complete radical ideological overhaul. And it may well be that 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 turns out to be a forlorn aim that, you know, nobody is is going to be able to to shift the Labour Party back where it needs to go. But I I tend to take heart sometimes from a number of people who have said to me, for example, within the Labour movement, members of the Labour Party, trade union activists who might have read my book or some of the things that I've written, And say to me privately, um, actually, you know, I agree with much of what you say and we need to do a lot of what you're articulating. People who wouldn't necessarily say it publicly, I think partly because there is this um, kind of suffocating atmosphere on the left today within the Labour movement, where you are expected to conform to the orthodoxy. You know, there's one, there's one view on many subjects, and if you don't express it, uh, then you have no place on the left. And I think there's an element of fear among people about articulating ideas um, that, that may run up against that. Um, but, you, you know, they are there. They are there. They exist. Uh, as I say, you know, there are some groups within the Labour Party who are trying to do what's necessary. There are individuals around who are, are trying to do what's necessary. And it's about breaking the grip, I think, of the of the liberal left and the, the radical left and about, I think, ultimately, I've argued before, a lot of it comes down to just being brave enough to take these people on in public. Um, and there aren't enough people at the moment who are brave enough to do it mm. because they think their reputation is going to be damaged. Uh, in some cases, they think their career may be ended. They think they may be cancelled. Um, but sometimes you just have to, sometimes you just have to say, bugger it. You know, these, these people are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, they're destroying the left. And they're allowing the Tories years and years of, of government effectively unopposed if we're not careful. Uh, and the people who have. Created a situation where the Labour Party finds itself in the predicament that it's in needs need to be challenged head on, and if that means we take a bit of stick by by articulating the ideas we need to articulate, then then we need to do it. Um, and it's about giving people, I think, the confidence to to do that. They exist, I think, um, not in enough number, but it's like anything: the more people start speaking up and putting their head above the parapet, they tend to find that others start to follow.
1: I uh, completely agree, and I think actually, very often. The cowardice that some people exhibit, it may be understandable because cancel culture can be very ferocious, but that ends up emboldening the cancellers because they feel stronger just by the fact that people aren't saying what they really think, aren't taking part in those difficult discussions and aren't pushing back against the kind of woke Left or the woke elite, or however we want want to describe them, on that issue, on that issue of stifling orthodoxies and how difficult it can be to to confront those, um, that's obviously something you do with uh, not much fear at all. And I want to ask you about the woke agenda and how you understand it. So you've written about you know the concerns of ordinary voters tend to be around issues like law and order, immigration, borders, security economic matters and so on. Whereas what you have on much of the left now is an obsession with identity politics, the LGBT issue, particularly the transgender issue, issues like climate change, issues like Palestine. And I thought that was really notable over the past couple of weeks in particular. Now, people will have all sorts of positions on the Israel-Palestine question, but the intensity of much of the radical left in particular, the, the, the intensity of their focus on issues like Palestine to the exclusion of others, almost as if they care more about what happens in Gaza than in Gateshead. I think all of that makes an impression on voters that there is an obsession with fairly eccentric or or strange issues rather than with the things that working class voters want to talk about. Is that how you understand the woke agenda and, and the and the reason why it makes so many voters feel alienated from that kind of politics?
0: Yeah, I, I think the focus on some of these, you know, what you might call more middle class issues, more middle class pursuits is is a direct symptom of the fact that the movement itself has you know, over over time, become so more middle class, become so more kind of rooted in the the fashionable cities and the university towns, so more kind of cosmopolitan liberal in its general outlook in life, graduate-based. And and so the interests of that cohort of people, if you like, have come to dominate the agenda for much of the left. I mean, I, I certainly don't argue that you shouldn't on the left discuss these issues. It's absolutely a place to discuss the Israel-Palestine conflict Um, and, you know, the, the issues around LGBT rights and migrant rights. Those debates should not be off limits. My argument has always been no serious political party looking to appeal to the mainstream in this country and looking to win an election should put those issues front and centre over the issues, uh, the everyday issues that stress ordinary working-class families, you know, jobs and wages and law and order and immigration and national security, the things that actually are the priorities of of most people when they go into the, the ballot box and vote, but actually the issues that cause many left activists to stare down at the ground and shuffle their shoes in embarrassment when they come up on the doorstep. You know, for for me, the, the the woke agenda and the descent into our identity politics has been an absolute disaster mm. for the left in terms of alienating so many millions of working class people who don't understand the obsession with these things. Uh, it's been divisive uh, and it's been regressive, and I think the left is paying a huge price for it. And and the whole kind of woke thing, for me, is is essentially about people trying to gain some sort of social kudos by being seen to express a fashionable political or moral opinion or, by the same token, denouncing someone yeah. for expressing an unfashionable um, political or moral opinion. And often I think it's it's an impassive kind of politics. It, it's, got no, it's got no resemblance to, you know, traditional grassroots organising, community organising, organising within the the trade union movement, uh, doing the hard yards of organising and trying to win support for your campaign. People just sit behind a keyboard or sit on their iPhone and tap out a tweet and think that's done it. That's done it for me in, in my daily fight against social injustice. It's, it's the worst kind of, of virtue signaling for me, and, and it's coupled with this with this tendency to say, you can't say that. Mm-hmm. Whereas once upon a time, we, we would argue with people and say, I disagree with you, and here's why I disagree with you. Increasingly, there's a habit now of people to say, you mustn't say that, or if you do say that, you, you're going to pay a price for it. And it's, you know, until people understand that that they are speaking for a tiny minority with their obsession with with some of these issues and and their approach to them, then frankly, the Labour movement has got no way back into the the hearts and the affections of of many millions of working class people across this country.
1: Spike is publishing more than ever articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we published that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, What's Not to Like?, so stay on top of everything Spike produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. One of the most frustrating things if it, it, when one criticises the politics of wokeness is that sections of the left will turn around and say, well, are you saying that working class communities don't care about gay rights and don't care about racial equality and don't care about these issues. And of course, we're not saying that at all. And in fact, there are very high levels of tolerance across British society now for different kinds of relationships, for interracial marriage, for everyone having the exact same rights, regardless of their origins, regardless of their skin colour. We all know there have been vast improvements in those social attitudes over the past 30 or 40 years. I think what what I mean when I say that working class communities bristle against the woke agenda is precisely because, as you say, they recognise that it isn't about those previously progressive struggles for greater equality and greater freedom, but has become a culture of denunciation, a culture of an affected moral superiority on the part of the woke against the rabble and against those who are seen as having the wrong views. And I think people really dislike that attitude. I think another aspect of it that people are uncomfortable with is a feeling that the woke left or the radical left, or however we want to describe it, is anti-British. Now, I don't want to demonize anyone for being insufficiently proud or insufficiently patriotic because you get into difficult territory when you do something like that. But the way in which there is this disdainful attitude towards British history, this tendency to say, well, Churchill was as bad as Hitler, don't you know? Um, The description of anyone who waves the Union flag as a flag shagger, and yet the same people who use the term flag shagger will adorn themselves in the EU flag and the pride flag and, and so on. I think for lots of ordinary voters, there is a sense that Britain is a pretty good country, Uh, or uh, could obviously be a better one but it's a pretty good country it's got a pretty good history you've got a pretty good shot in this country if if the conditions are right and they don't like the way in which sections of the radical left in particular have this disdainful attitude to the country in which they live
0: I just think it's bizarre how so many people on the left don't understand that no party or movement is ever going to win mainstream support in this country if voters perceive that that party or movement actively dislikes its own country (laughs) I mean that point seems to me to be so blindingly obvious (laughs) that you know it's almost embarrassing to have Mm. to say it but but there is no question that there is this this perception I think among voters and they look at the They look at parts of the Labour Party uh, and the wider left, and they do see a movement that is, in many cases, actively hostile to any sort of display of patriotism or, or so far as it indulges it, it's, it's done in a, in a quite grudging way. I mean, I, I'm no jingoist, but I often get mm. accused of being a, a flagway. Flag. I've never, I'd, I'd, I'd never flown a new <laughs> Dak or a St George's flag in my life from my house, from my car. It's not the sort of thing I go in for. I mean, I don't call for the national anthem to be played in school assemblies every morning or, or anything like that. And actually, I, I don't think people, most people in this country are jingoistic in that sort of overtly nationalistic way. I think they're just basically people who have got an understated affinity and affection for the country in which they were born and and for their fellow citizens of that country, which is, you know, the the basis of of any sort of benign patriotism. And that actually is the root, I think, of social solidarity, that feeling of belonging to, to a single political and cultural and economic unit in that way. But much of the left just looks upon any expression of, of patriotism and thinks automatically it must be synonymous with some kind of white supremacy, yeah. uh, you know, some kind of fascist, uh, innate fascism, some sort of fascist sentiment. And it's just so, for me, it's just so out of kilter with, with the basis of, of most people's patriotism It's it's ludicrous. And, and you're right that, you know, would that most countries be as tolerant and as decent as as Britain in terms of in terms of its approach and you know th- there are there are countries out there i think who could learn a thing or two uh, about Britain uh, and about its tolerance including some eu countries we are we are far better i think uh, at living alongside each other extending Tolerance and friendship, the hand of friendship um, towards people who may not necessarily be much like us, and, and the, the depiction of a Britain that's a cesspit of racism and nativism and bigotry, I think is, is appalling. And when that kind of language comes from the left, I think ordinary people look at that and go, "Actually, you're not you're not representing me, and you're not portraying my country as it is." And, and I think that basic expression from the left of that sort of anti-patriotism, I think, has has, has played a huge role in the disconnect between the left and working class communities.
1: I agree. Britain is a tolerant country, arguably the most tolerant country in Europe, or certainly one of the most tolerant countries. But I want to ask you about the culture of intolerance in sections of the left. Now, this is something you yourself have experienced. You have been called a fascist and uh, a white supremacist and other things simply because you defend traditional labour values and speak up for the working classes, there's this ing- growing assumption among sections of the identitarian left that anyone who talks about the traditional working class is secretly only talking about white people, when in fact, we're well aware that traditional working classes consists of people from all sorts of backgrounds. And then there are other issues on which there is this extraordinary intolerance as well. And a good example is the transgender issue. And I've often thought that even though this is a small issue in the scheme of things, there are not that many trans people, it really shouldn't be as much of a national focus as it has become. I think it's a good example of a symbolic issue of the problems facing the Labour Party, because a party which will not allow female members to have open, critical discussions about gender and sex-based rights and the question of whether men can become women, etc. A party that, as Tony Blair recently said, amazingly, a party that has no room for JK Rowling, a party that won't allow those kinds of discussions, is really a party that is not going to connect with most ordinary people who will agree with the idea that trans people should have the right to live as freely as they please, but will disagree with the idea that biological males should play in women's sports or go into women's domestic violence shelters or take women's positions on all party women's shortlists and so on. Do you think that, see that as, as an issue that sums up the problems in the Labour Party where it can't even bring itself, or, or rather in sections of the Labour Party, where they can't even bring themselves to say trans people should have the same rights as everyone else but we have got to stand by women and their right to speak freely and to exercise their sex-based rights. Yeah,
0: I do think it's, it's an indictment of, of where we are on the left, actually, mm. that something like this has become almost like a new frontier in left-wing politics in this country. Um, and actually, you know, what I think has been appalling is the fact that many women who, many of them political activists, many of them on the left, who have been on the right side of equality arguments and campaigns going back years, have suddenly been demonised as as bigots. And the way that these women have been attacked and abused and silenced and cancelled in some cases, I think should be a matter of deep burning shame for, for people on the left who have either indulged in it or have turned a blind eye to it. What these women have done in most cases is simply come out and said, look, we need a debate about yeah. this, actually. You know, there, there, is, there is such a thing as biological sex. We didn't strive for many years as a feminist movement in this country to get equality for, for women, to win advances um, like security and dignity and single-sex spaces, security in the workplace and, and public places, etc. Just for all of that to be unpicked because elements of the, the left establishment and the wider political establishment, frankly, are too frightened to say no to any minority interest group who is shouting loud enough and yeah, there are all sorts of valid questions that have come up about this you know what, what does self what does gender self-identification mean for the whole definition of woman you know is there an objective definition yeah. of woman if we say that people can just simply declare themselves to, to be a woman what does that mean for, for women's equality and um, what does that mean for women's security and the idea that people should be demonised and, and hounded simply for a certain scientific truth basically and biological truth is is bordering, what well, it's not bordering on insane it is insane and you know I, I agree that people should be entitled to live their lives within the law uh, if people want to call themselves a particular name, if people want to, to, to wear a particular clothing uh, then who are we to say they shouldn't do that and I'd be the first to, to come to the defence of anyone who was being bullied or, or harassed for you know if, if a man wanted to dress as a woman then good luck to him Actually, there are some things where the demands become too much and where people say, look, actually, not only do I identify as a woman, but I demand that the Mm law recognize me as a woman and I demand everyone conform and I demand the right to enter single sex spaces for for women or to, to go into women's prisons or women's refuges. And if you don't allow that then you're some sort of bigger and the law should intervene, then actually we do need to push back against that. And we need at the very least a serious debate about the, the impacts of that. But there are parts of the left who don't even entertain that debate and simply say, no, it's a, it's a minority group that has made a demand. We have to fall in line with it regardless of the implications because if we don't, we're standing against equality. And I'm heartened by the fact that more and more people are starting to push back against it because I think it needs to be done.
1: Okay. I want to ask you a couple of questions about the Tories. And one of the most striking things of the past year is surely the fact that we've been through a very serious crisis. We've lost our liberties in a way that is historically unprecedented. Some people think that was justifiable and necessary. Other people are less sure. The Tories have made many, many mistakes, not least in relation to care homes and um, other issues as well in relation to the pandemic. And yet even in that kind of situation, Labour has not been able to make any serious headway and has not been able to chip away at the uh, popularity of the Tory party, which strikes me as quite extraordinary. And one of the things that Labour has tended to focus on, particularly over the past few weeks, is the issue of Tory sleaze, how much Boris's curtains cost and who paid for his holiday or who paid for his housing renovations none of which really cut through with ordinary people it's felt like labor and sections of the media were talking to themselves about those kinds of issues so just on on the tory government which neither you or i will be a very big fan of what do you think is the secret of their success is it is it the fact that we've been in a crisis and therefore people generally pull together with their government against the external threat, in this case, COVID-19, is it that Labour is just so weak that it just can't make any grounds at all? What do you think explains the fairly well-sustained popularity of the Tory party over the past 18 months? First of all, I think in the lead up to
0: the general election, I think the get Brexit done Mm -hmm. message hit home very, very hard and resonated in many communities that that for years have voted Labour. And as I said before, having, having voted Tory once, the taboo has been broken yep. and, and they won't hesitate to, to do it again. I think that they have been quite astute, and I don't necessarily believe for a second that they'll deliver on it. But I think they've been quite astute in terms of their messaging by recoiling from some of the old style kind of Thatcherite neoliberalism, rolling back the frontiers of the state, handing over everything to the private sector, There's no room for for anything other than the smallest type of government in the function of the economy. What we've seen from the Tory party more recently is much more of an interventionist line. Um, You know, we're going to invest in infrastructure. You know, we're going to part-nationalise, if you like, the the railway network and some of this stuff. But at the same time as taking that approach on the economy, a more interventionist approach on the economy, I think their messaging has been successful in terms of some of the cultural yeah. agenda, you know, recognising that, yeah, there is a culture war going on in the country. And it was launched by the liberal left. And it's about time that we started pushing back against it. I think a lot of Tories are still cowards, on that, yeah. to be honest. One or two, I think, are speaking up. I think the likes of Liz Truss probably deserve some credit. But the Tories are not seen as being immersed in that sort of woke agenda and that identity politics in the way that the left are. And, you know, I've said for a long time now, I think there's a huge space in British politics for a party that that does tack to the left on economic issues and is prepared to take an interventionist approach, recognises that the gap between rich and poor is too wide, believes in tackling regional inequalities, boardroom excesses, higher minimum wage, all of that sort of thing. Um, but understands the, the the innate culture of many working class communities and and can speak to their everyday concerns and priorities on on some of the issues that the Labour Party turns its nose up to. And I think the Tories have kind of moved into that ground in quite a big way. I think there's probably a bit of a battle raging in the in the yeah. Tory Party between that sort of Thatcherite libertarian wing, if you like, and the more sort of one-nation type Tories who, who are in favour of taking a more interventionist approach. I tend to think that in some, in some ways I think that Starmer should just adopt this sort of masochist approach where he says, look, well, what I'm going to do actually is I'm going to go out to some of these constituencies that we lost. I'm going to put myself in the market square. I'm not going to have you know the usual sort of bodyguards stopping people from from getting to me. I'm going to speak to people head on and that will mean I'll be battered verbally Mm -hmm. uh, and it means I'm going to take a lot of stick. I think people will respect him. I don't think it will happen, but I think it should happen um, because I think people would respect any Labour leader who gets out there and goes into these communities and and, in an unvarnished way, as themselves before these communities and, and takes everything that they've got, to, they've got to, to throw at them. Because I think anything short of that, to be honest, is, is not going to work. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the battle for Labour is to move on to the, the territory where the, where the Tories have moved on to, whilst still, in my view, being more economically radical than the Tories will ever be. I think they understand that they've got half a chance, or a quarter of a chance of winning <laughs> at some point in the future.
1: In relation to the Tories, uh, I want to ask you your, your opinion on the levelling up agenda, the much discussed levelling up agenda. The more I hear that phrase, the less convinced I am that it's going to happen in any substantial way. And I wonder if there's a danger that the Conservative government is making the same mistake that some on the left have made, which is understanding the needs of certain communities entirely in economic terms, which is always a mistake people made in relation to Brexit. So they would often say, why did these Stupid people in Wales or the north of England vote against the EU when they've received EU grants to build a, an art gallery or a bridge or whatever else it might be, as if, you know, a few crumbs from the table is all that people are interested in, when in fact, people are interested in the question of their democratic power, the question of who's in control of society, the question of their right to partake in these important debates and so on. In relation to the levelling up discussion, it, it's a necessary idea in the sense that there are some parts of the country that have been significantly left behind in terms of economic health. But do you think the Conservative government understands the forces that contributed to that economic devastation? And do you think a narrow interpretation of these problems as simply being about economic matters rather than also being about the importance of community, the importance of democracy, the importance of bringing those communities back into the political fold and the political realm. Do you think the Conservative Party are making a mistake in, in the way in which they conceive of their agenda for that part of the country?
0: Well, I'm, I'm just not convinced that they're, that they're serious about it or <laughs> they've got the right. Prescriptions for it. In principle, I I don't see any particular issue with uh, the levelling up agenda. I mean, there there are still wide disparities Mm -hmm. between rich and poor in this country. As far as I'm concerned, working class people don't get uh, a fair deal. And I don't think the Tories will ever be the party to, to put that right. Um, and actually, you know, if you if you look at some of the stuff they've articulated around the levelling up agenda, it's not particularly radical. I think it's pretty limited in, in its scope. If we're talking about levelling up, then I, I think we need to be speaking about, you know, how do we achieve full employment, for example? Mm. How do we make ourselves more competitive as a manufacturing nation? How do we create thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of stable blue-collar jobs in successful industries? What are we prepared to raise the minimum wage to? You know the Tories are about leveling up and why are they why are they keeping public sector pay they're keeping the lid on public sector pay in the way that they've done for you know the last ten years and are, are no doubt going to try to do for, for many years in the future um so they they don't have in my view the right economic prescriptions and I don't think they they ever will do they're the Tories <laughs> been, let's be blunt about. It. But but it is not, and this comes back to the question, it is not the be-all and end-all. And we saw that in 2017 and 2019, that all the promises in the world in terms of economic radicalism and putting more money in people's pockets and higher minimum wages and trade union rights and all of that sort of thing is not enough on its own. You've got to understand the importance of people's sense of belonging, their sense of place, their patriotism, their communitarian instinct their desire for stability in their communities and in a way that they aren't suddenly buffeted by the the very fierce storms of globalisation and, and rapid demographic change, which can violate their sense of place and sense of belonging. And that if we're going to impose change in communities, whether it's economic or social change, we need to do it in such a way that it can be comfortably absorbed by those communities. And you know, Labour Labour clearly hasn't understood that. I don't think necessarily the, the Tories do. But for as long as Labour doesn't present a serious alternative, then all the Tories will have to do is keep at least articulating the idea of levelling up and, and bringing economic sense to these communities and, and they're not going to face a serious threat.
1: Okay, so my final question following on from that is about Brexit and the future. And one of the reasons that people like you and me we 're very excited about the vote for brexit is firstly because it was a a kick in the eye to the European Union, which deserved a kick in the eye, but also because it was in many ways a working class revolt a, a ballot box revolt by people who had been ignored or despised, as you say in your book for far too long, and it was the, a restatement of working-class power and uh, working-class democracy and a a demand to be taken seriously on the big issues of the day and the questions of uh, the constitution, borders, nationhood, and and so on. There is, of course, a danger that that working-class voice will be left to rot because the Labour Party completely failed to connect with it and embody it. And instead, it turned around and said, we need a second referendum. We think your vote should be voided because it was a mistake and we're going to vote again. The Conservative Party have done a good job of appealing to that working class voice. Get Brexit done was a very good point of connection with lots of those voters. And the Conservative Party is changing in ways that make it more appealing to people who traditionally have voted Labour. But I think you and I are both very sceptical of the idea that the Conservative Party could ever become a working class party in a meaningful sense. So the question, I guess, of British politics at this current moment is who or what will connect in a serious way with that working class voice? And do you think for the foreseeable future it will just be something that the Conservatives are able to tap into? Or do you seriously think Labour can come back, listen to those voters and embody their aspirations once again?
0: I I don't see Labour being a serious economic force, um, potentially for at least a decade or more, unless something really radical happens within the party in terms of an internal revolution, in terms of, you know, changing its entire DNA, then, you know, by the same token, unless something really catastrophic happens to the Tories and they implode in some way, and I think they're probably set to govern this country Mm. for, for at least the next decade and i mean on the on the brexit issue i think yes you know keir starmer um, i think he deserves credit for for saying that we can't reopen the wound and it's it's done uh, and you know we've got to just get on with it i don't think there are large parts of the party that are going to let him get away with that i think there are parts of the party that will will try to refight that old battle and i think for as long as the tories are prepared to to withstand that and be seen as as being the people who not only delivered Brexit but actually believe in it and are prepared to embrace it um, then that will go, I think, some way to 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 maintaining the support of people whose support they won for the first time back in 2019 and at the and at the recent elections. Uh, so at the moment, the Tories are, are dominant. I mean, there's there's no other way to look at it. The, the Tories are in charge. Um, they are even with COVID and you know much of the fallout around that. They're still pretty dominant in the polls. Uh, and I think that that's an indictment of, of just how far the Labour Party is from, from the mainstream vote in this country. And as I said at the beginning of the of the interview, you know, that Labour is historically a, a coalition of Hampstead and Hartlepool. Uh, and for as long as its priorities are dominated by Hampstead, um, then it's going to be, I think, on the, the sidelines of British politics and, and not a serious fireball alternative for, for government.
1: Paul Embry, thank you very much. Thanks, Brendan.